1: of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Derek Notman. Derek is the founder of Intrepid Wealth Partners, operates as an agent for New York Life and an IAR for Eagle Strategies, and oversees nearly 15 million of assets under management for almost 200 clients. What's unique about Derek, though, is the way that he's evolved his advisory firm from a traditional bricks and mortar office space into an entirely virtual practice, born out of sheer necessity when he moved halfway across the country for an advisory firm merger that fell through and then had to figure out how to operate from two office locations, and evolved into a firm that has no office space at all. In this episode, we talk in depth about Derek's journey from a high-volume bricks-and-mortar office-based practice to an entirely virtual one, from starting out as an insurance agent where the pressure is on generating a high volume of clients that ultimately culminated in a practice of more than 1,000 clients in his first 10 years, how a move from where Derek started in Vermont out to Wisconsin forced him to start meeting with his team and then eventually clients using video chat, the way Derek eventually built out the entire virtual team he operates with today, and the way Derek has been able to grow his income and his freedom by transitioning nearly 80% of his clients away to other advisors while working with his clients sometimes as far as a continent away. We also talk about how Derek's efforts on growth and business development have changed over the years. From the way he aggressively sought out networking opportunities and referrals in person to expand his client base in the early years, to a shift of generating 100% of his new clients online and virtually today through the use of a blog and social media, his decision to create a narrower niche focus on small business owners and CEOs, and how declaring that he works virtually with clients right on his homepage as their, quote, virtual wealth partner, has actually helped him to attract new clients by promising not to meet with them in person. And be certain to listen to the end, where Derek talks about why he regrets having tried to build a big practice in a big bricks and mortar office, the pain points he's worked through in trying to get a large insurance company on board with his virtual model, where the greater challenge was not running his firm virtually and digitally, but simply trying to market for clients online, and how Derek is now trying to teach other advisors the virtual tools and systems that he had to figure out the hard way. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Derek Knottman.
2: Welcome, Derek Knottman, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hello, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm excited for today's episode. We, I feel like we've talked in the industry for the past couple of years about this phenomenon that you in, in, in an internet-based digital world, there, there's sort of this geographic disconnect that starts to occur. You, you you don't have to only serve clients in your area because now we have not only email, but like we have screen shares and video chats and all these different technology tools. And you and more and more firms I find have at least some subset of clients that are virtual, either you know, got referred to them, weren't in the area and still work from the firm at a distance or clients we worked with for a period of time and then they move and relocate and are no longer in the area, but we get to keep working with them because we've got all these digital tools. But you have this kind of fascinating practice to me that has taken this to to perhaps the logical extreme that you live in the world of running an entirely virtual advisory firm, so much so that you are often not even in the country or on the continent while working with clients. (laughs) And so I'm excited today to talk about what it means to have a virtual location-independent Advisory firm taken to sort of the the, the logical extreme that you have, and I, I don't mean to like paint you as a negative extremist, but just like you you've gone way further down this road <laughs> than almost anybody else that I have met with a virtual office, a virtual practice, all virtual team. I'm just excited to hear like how this came about and, and how exactly this works in practice.
2: I'm happy to share the story. It's it's been a journey, I'll tell you that, but it's it's been a ton of fun and. Yeah. Ha- happy to dive in. And again, thanks for having me today. I think this is gonna be a ton of fun. I guess, do you want me kind of to start early in my career and what I did and kind of share that journey or how, how would you like? Yeah. Yeah. I'd,
1: I'd, I'd love to hear the the journey of just how did you get started in the visor business such that you end up in this world where you're, you know, helping clients with their financial plans from a beach in South Africa. How, do we, how does that journey work exactly?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, and I actually just got back from South Africa like a week ago. So I started as a captive insurance agent back in 2006. And I didn't know any different. I didn't even know how to spell investments, insurance, IRA, any of that stuff. I have had a passion for helping people for a long time. Right out of college, I ended up working with at-risk youth in a residential treatment center. So I was on a team of boys, teenage boys. They were 13 to 17 and literally murderers, drug dealers, rapists, arson, you name it. And was helping them in this environment. And one, it taught me to grow up real quick. (laughs) And then two, it taught me that I really loved helping people. And so I did that for a couple of years and then decided, my wife and I decided just to try something different. So we moved out to New England. And at that time, I'm like, okay, I've kind of got an opportunity for a fresh start here. I love helping people. I also love working with money. Where can I do this?
1: (laughs) This guy sounds like a financial advisor gig. Yeah, right.
2: So, and I didn't even know like really what that meant, but it it just like, it felt right. Like these were two of my passions. I'm like, well, I should do what I love. So I literally put my resume on monster.com and I don't even do people still use monster.com. I don't even know.
1: I think so. Like monster.com and indeed.com kind of out there. I think they've actually just merged into like one giant job resume octopus with a lot of different tentacles. but you can still put your resume online and and people seem to find their way to it sometimes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I did. And I just, I threw it out there and I got some calls from some larger national firms that people would know and they wouldn't hire me. Like I, I went, I, I had to do this four interview process because I literally just moved to Vermont and I literally did not know a single person in the state when we moved there. So like they're looking at this young kid and like, so you have no natural market? Who are you going mm-hmm. to work with? How is this going to work? But they took it. They took a flyer on me. I was, I guess, persuasive enough. I don't know. And I just jumped in. And I was like, all right, I'm going to learn this thing the way that they do it initially, and then I'll make it my own eventually. And my first full year as an advisor, insurance agent slash advisor, whatever you want to call it, I got my series six within like the first month or two of, of starting. I was named the leading new advisor for the whole state of Vermont. So I found early success and then just kept building upon that, but knew from a very early stage that I wanted to run my own shop. So to speak, I wanted to have my own brand. I wanted to do comprehensive financial planning. So then what I did, and and I don't know if, you know, you stop me here if I'm going into deeper or whatever, but I did what every other advisor for the last hundred years is taught to do. And that was to hire physical staff, go open a brick and mortar office. So I went and bought an office building in my town and rehab the heck out of it. It was a ton of work, ton of money. And then just built this brick and mortar business where I wore a suit and tie to work every day and worked within this geographic region that I lived in. And I had a lot of success.
1: So so help me understand that that early path to success. I think if, for a lot of people, like that's that's a struggle out of the gate which firm picked you up initially as you got started in in life insurance world
2: yeah New York life okay yep. so you're
1: getting so you're gonna start in New York life having recently moved to Vermont with absolutely no natural market because you weren't from there so what the heck were you doing in year one like it's a to survive because a lot of these <laughs> not like B to hit you know top advisor in the state as a new advisor in the first year like what what were you doing?
2: Well, I, I think it boils down to two things. And this, this goes, I, mean, I can share this later, but I, I did have dark days along the way. This isn't all been rosy for sure. But one is I had the methodology or the philosophy, whatever you want to call it, of do what's right for people first and eventually I will get paid. So even though I couldn't call myself a financial advisor or financial planner, I operated as one. And I made very sure to be thorough in whatever I was doing and not just trying to push a product at any given time. And then I also just became very good at marketing myself and asking for referrals, personal introductions, things of that nature. So just doing what was right and being natural and being me and focusing on education and process instead of product, it worked. And I was kind of making up some of this up as I went, but I was just doing a kind of like what I felt was right for people so what were
1: you what were you doing to market yourself and and get yourself out there you know, new community younger guy i'm assuming presuming you're like mid twenties at this point is you twenty
2: five when i started yep Yeah,
1: so so you know young guy, new community, hey, trust me with your money and your you know, <laughs> crucial life insurance decisions I mean I think this is the like the the eternal challenge now for younger and newer advisors coming in, you know the the good and bad news about the old days of cold calling was a like it was a simpler product sale. If you got like if you had a good product to sell, you might get them to buy. B at least it was over the phone, so they couldn't see you and how young you might be. It's a different <laughs> business now of you know, more trust, more depth, more complexity, more face to face. All of which I think get harder when you're younger and newer. So. Like what were you doing? You're saying you know, marketing yourself and, and focusing on education. Like what were you doing to actually get going, prospect, and find some people to to talk to and do business with?
2: Well, I very early on I considered myself a business owner instead of a sales professional. So as a business so What's owner, the difference to you? Oh man, a sales professional is literally just focused on selling. Okay. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that that's what they do. And a business owner has to have sales. They have to have revenue to grow their business, but they also have to do all these other things that are important to running a business. I mean, you get this, Michael, you you run multiple businesses. So you have to have like infrastructure and processes and all that. So instead of just coming in and trying to sell on the first appointment or just say, hey, you should buy this because it's a great company or it's a great product. I really focused on a process and that process, you know, started with the marketing and I literally at the time to introduce myself would write out letters. I would do, it was like 20 letters every Wednesday, mail them that day, telling the prospect I would be calling them the next week. And then, so that way when I, you know, it's, it's kind of still cold, but it warmed up a little bit. Right. But it, it it made me feel confident, like, hey, I have a reason to call these people. They know I'm calling. I am introducing myself instead of just showing up out of out of nowhere. Cause let's face it, no one really likes to get like a cold solicitation call. <laughs> I don't care what decade. You're well at. even even if you do some other cold <laughs> mailer
1: lead in just to make the call warm because you already hit them with the cold mailer.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And I
1: think it's fair. Like it, it, it still counts. It changes the context of the conversation a little if they at least they saw what else you were trying to send them or reach them with in the first place. Yeah.
2: So just, just trying to take them through a process, a journey instead of just a sale. Cause people love to buy, they don't want to be sold to. So just taking them through that process. And then when I sat with them, like I'm not jumping in and talking about me a whole lot or about product. I'm, I'm literally asking like, what's important to you? What's, what is your future? Like what keeps you up at night? And really just learning about them and building the rapport, right? building these relationships is so crucial. This is a relationship business. And then because of that, because of doing good work and, and being genuine and not focusing on the product, it was very easy to get referred in to other clients. One of, one of the fun tricks I, I, I used to do, well, not tricks, but strategies or tactics I used was I went to Staples or whatever, and they had these carbon copy memo pads. You could buy 50 for like $6 or something. And I would make that part of my process. Once I got to the point that the clients were willing to, to move forward with their recommendation, then I would ask them like, hey, can I be introduced to some people that, you know, that my, I might also be able to, you know, benefit? And I will give them that carbon copy and say, listen, please put the names and phone numbers down, but I'm going to give you a carbon copy today because I would ask you to call these people ahead of time. And if anyone on this list doesn't want to hear from me, please let me know and I won't bother them. It was simple. It was basic. I'm literally using carbon copies, but it worked and it worked to, it led to very warm referral introductions. And then I wasn't calling people that didn't want to be hearing from me either. Interesting. So you were, you were, Asking for the referral,
1: setting up the conversation to say like look, you call them first. You let me know if it's going well, like, you know, this is a note for you. I'm just gonna have the carbon copy memo version so that if you follow up with me and say yes it's okay to contact them i've got the duplicate copy with the contact information to contact them
2: bingo yep and it also made them feel more comfortable like well i don't want you just calling my brother-in-law out of the blue like let me talk to him first which is totally fine like i I think that's normal Like, you don't want to just send some some new person to all your friends and family without getting their permission yeah and so how did you
1: like set up even the referral conversation i mean someone you just flat out asked like hey, I've enjoyed working with you. Can I be introduced to any others you know that might benefit from the work
2: that I do? Pretty much, but it wasn't until I've gained their trust and their business, because I haven't earned the right to ask for a referral until they are a client. And I'm only going to be getting them as a client if I've built up a rapport and built up a level of trust where they are willing to trust me with their money or their insurance decisions. I don't deserve it before that trust is established. But then at that point, yeah, I ask. I'm just very, you know... Here's the type of people I'm trying to work with at this time. If you know anybody that fits this profile, I would love an introduction to them. Don't worry. I'm not going to try to sell them anything on the first meeting. I just want to get to know them.
1: And so I get that once you get some people that you work with and, and get to do some business with. And, and so, again, I just want to come back to like, so how are you, how are you getting your – initial prospects like what did you what were you doing that worked or heck what did you try that didn't work as you're just out there 25 years old in a cold market both because you had no natural market because it's it's literally cold in your <laughs> uh, you're you're out there in a completely cold market just trying to get people to talk to in the first place yeah you
2: know I don't know, for whatever reason, I mean, it was, it was hard, but I had consistent name flow and I, I don't know if that I can attribute that to just my style and, 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 way of doing things. I worked a lot. I was working 60, 70 hours a week. If I was not in a client meeting or on my, on my way to a client meeting, I was making phone calls or looking for other people to call. So it, it was a lot of, a lot of hours. And yeah, like my my wife was a teacher at the time, so I knew some people at the school. So I asked for meetings with them. Literally, I did some of this, which was awful in earlier years. The business walk and talks, where you literally drop into a business. I tried a lot of different things because that's what we were told to do.
1: And so, which pieces tended to connect for you? I like, guess like some combination of they worked and they didn't feel awful to you to do.
2: Yeah, right. I always needed a reason to contact somebody with, so I wouldn't feel. Like Weird or bad about it, so referrals was always easy. personal introductions from from like current clients, people that my wife worked with, friends as we started to get ingrained in the community. but most of the cold stuff, it just never went anywhere. It was a lot of heartache, a lot of getting porched. it was tough, and you got to get a thick skin to get through some of that
1: and so what was business for you early on? like is this all? Good old fashioned New York life insurance product. You mentioned you got your Series Six early on, but I don't know if you were actually were doing or got you know permission to do a lot of mutual fund or other investment business. Like, what did the what did it look like as you were just trying to get going?
2: Yeah, it was a, it was really a combination because again, I really focused on even though I wasn't a financial advisor, I really wanted to do the comprehensive planning for people. So it was whatever they needed. So if they need a term life insurance, that's what we're going to do. You know, I'm not going to try to sell you the most expensive thing. I'm I'm going to try to get you what's right for your situation. Did a ton of IRAs, small IRAs, getting people set up like 50 bucks, you know, a month to start in mutual funds and brokerage accounts. So whatever they needed and I could help them implement, I would do. So, I mean, the first couple of years, I was writing 150, 200 different types of pieces of business a year.
1: And just... (laughs) writing anything you could write from anyone you could find just for on fucking like 150 hundred pieces of business that is a lot of human beings to get in front of
2: it is it is it, it's a lot and a lot of them were small bits bits of business but you know it's it, it was just getting out there i learned a lot I learned what didn't work i, wor- I learned what did work I mean, how are you just
1: how would you go out and introduce yourself like i'm Derek. i work for new york life i'm, I'm Derek. i'm an insurance agent
2: yeah, at that time, I I, I mean, because I mean, New York Life's been around a long time. They've got a pretty yeah. solid reputation and they've actually been in Vermont almost as long. Like, so they've been in New York State, obviously the longest, but Vermont was the second longest state they've been in. So I would just leverage that and be like, listen, my name is Derek. I'm a financial services professional with New York Life. I was I recently met with or was speaking with your friend, Joe. They had some nice things to say about you and suggested that I get in touch with you. And then most of the times they'd be like, oh yeah, Bob told me you're going to be calling or whatever, right? And then it led into a very easy conversation to get a meeting scheduled.
1: And so the goal of the conversation was just to get a meeting, then a meeting is to understand if there's an opportunity to business and then trying to do business with them. That was kind of the steps of it.
2: That was the process. Yep. Get get in front of them, have a good conversation about where they're at in life, what they're trying to do, do an assessment and then determine if there's needs or not, and then how to, you know, solve those needs.
1: Okay. So, so you, you get going, you're, you're getting some good volume, get some revenue going. You said, you started down, as you said, the uh, the traditional path. So, okay, we're going to make it bigger. We're in our office space and we're, we're hiring our, building our staff and we're building our infrastructure. So what came next?
2: So I did that for a while. Like I said, I bought the office building. I had a couple in-house staff for marketing operations and so forth. How big did it ultimately get? Like how many people did you have on board? There were five people in the office, I think at the biggest. Okay, And then also a couple additional advisors that we would bring in or newer, newer agents that were looking for some more structure. Okay, So it wasn't, it wasn't terribly big, but I never wanted to be terribly big. That was just never really my goal. And I learned that the hard way because I, again, I was like basically told and maybe not directly told, but you look at all of the the guys and girls that have been in the industry for 20 or 30 years and that's what they did. You're supposed to get a brick and mortar business, to hang your shingle up, hire a secretary and all these things, yep. and then have this big, beautiful boardroom and do meetings. I'm like, okay, well, everyone else is doing that. I guess I'm supposed to do that. And I, I foolishly didn't question it at the time, but then I did it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? It was so expensive. It was a distraction. You know, I remember one time in the office, like I had to go there with my business partner, like, one in the morning to deal with a broken sewer line in the basement. And, yeah, I'm like – Oh my. man, that's,
1: that's, a, that's certainly a good moment of like, <laughs> why again, the heck am I doing what I'm doing yeah. here? Right now? Like, oh. where am I, where did my life quite get to 1am sewer line? <laughs> <laughs> it
2: was, it was just like, what am I doing? It's just, you know, so I, I had to learn the hard way and I, I, I don't know if I'm just dense Michael or whatever, but. I just – sometimes I just try to trudge through things literally in the basement that night and just, you know, figured out long story short that it it didn't feel good. I did what I thought was the right thing and what looked like what everyone else had been doing in our industry for generations. And I tried it and I'm like, oh, man, this kind of sucks. I'm stressed. I've got a lot of overhead now. I've got weird hours. I've got all these other distractions with the building and staff that I didn't have before. And it just, it actually hurt the business. So I did that for a while. And then I actually had an opportunity to work with another advisor in Wisconsin. And this was about seven years ago, seven and a half years ago, these conversations started. And long story short on that, when I decided to move my family to Wisconsin to pursue this opportunity with another advisor. And this still still under the New York life umbrella, someone else that's in the system? Someone else in the system, yep. Okay. And that whole situation failed miserably. I don't know if you've ever heard the term, I'm sure you have, but partners are problems. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What happened, or at least in in like in retrospect, what, what happened? You know, you don't, you don't up and move your family from Vermont to Wisconsin without at least what felt at the time, like a vision that something good was going to happen. So what, what missed?
2: Yeah, it, everything looked really rosy on the outside, great packaging, great message, great opportunity, potential, blah, blah, blah. But you don't really get to know something until you get to see the inside. And it's the whole, like, don't judge a book by its cover type of thing. And the book looked pretty darn good on the outside. But then I got here, and the whole thing blew up in my face. Really stuff that was out of my control entirely. You know, I was kind of sold sold a bill of goods, I suppose. So, like, what was
1: off? Like, processes weren't good. Clients were actually not being served well. They, like, just didn't have the clients revenue you thought. Staff were... Not not happy
2: people after all. Like what was the all of the above. <laughs> okay. Yeah, all of the above and more. And then like the the person which will shall remain nameless.
1: Understood. We don't we don't we don't need to throw anybody under the no, under no, no,
2: podcast. No, and, and life's all about learning anyways, and I'm not here to I don't want to downplay anybody. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm just I'm sure I have my own part to play, but you know, part of it was that I was looking for a mentor relationship. I've always looked for someone that could I could look up to that had more experience that I could learn from. And that was part of the arrangement. At least that's what I thought it was. And within a month of moving here, this person moved out of state. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like uh, what just happened?
1: <laughs> like you moved there to partner with him and have him be your mentor. And then he literally left a month later.
2: Yes pretty crazy okay
1: Uh, that yeah that feels a little awkward not the least of which because it like it's hard to up and leave and move in a month without having planned that out for a while
2: (laughs) yeah so that was really tough those were some dark days for my wife and i and we had a new son at the time too my son was like a year old and it was just some really tough times i mean again like we my wife's sister lives in wisconsin but that's the only person we knew in wisconsin so okay. we, I, I had no market here. I had no base. I, and so it was tough and I, I had to figure out, do I stay and make a go of it or, or do I go back to Vermont?
1: So I guess you, you're still in the systems. like you, you've still got your Vermont clients. You still got your, your Vermont revenue, as it were, just, you're not. You're not there, so like you, you, can't do all the local marketing, exactly. all the local referral and networking, and such that you're doing before because
2: you're physically not there. Anymore. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, we had a lot. My wife and I had a lot of you know deep conversations about it, a lot of stressful, sleepless nights, and we decided to stay here. We're closer to family, and having a little guy running around, we wanted to be closer to family. We have still family in Minnesota as well, so it just made sense. So, I was on an airplane every three weeks or so back to Vermont. Okay. For two nights, I go for two nights and then come back. And that got expensive. It got tiring, but I did that for like a year. And it worked. You know, I was able to maintain the office and continue production and manage the staff and the office building and all that stuff. But boy, it, I think it took its pound of flesh along the way, too. Oh, that's a That's a
1: drag of like weekly commuting to another state and, and not a, not a close one, like an airplane.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the planes, because there's no big plane that goes in and out of Vermont. So like right. literally tin cans or my knees are in my, my mouth. Right. It's just right. Uh, brutal.
1: Right. You're like from Milwaukee to a hub and from a hub on a puddle jumper to Burlington <laughs> or something. <laughs>
2: exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I, I did it. I, you know, I, I, I had to, I had to, I didn't have a choice at the time. Otherwise we would have gone bankrupt, plain and simple. So in, in
1: retrospect, like, could you have seen it coming or is, is there something you, you wish you'd asked or, or tried to suss out further that might've staved off the, you know, such a miss on the, the prospective partnership?
2: I, I think so. So one thing I've learned the hard way again is for many years, I did not listen to my gut i would I would look for the best in people and try to ignore the the, the caution flags, if you will. Hmm. And I did that in this situation. There were things, conversations, comments made, or just like, you know as advisors, you know this, michael, like we we learn how to read people really well. like we read nonverbals and all that kind of stuff. yep. So there were, there were signs, but I chose to ignore them because the opportunity seemed really good. It was a chance to get closer to family. So our son could be around, you know, cousins and grandparents. So I ignored those things. And in retrospect, I should have listened to my gut and I didn't.
1: So one of the things that's always fascinated me about stories like this, where, where partnerships fall apart, (laughs) not, not just the like, Hey, we did it for many, many years, but then we sort of grew in different directions. The one that of like we came together as partners to do this thing, and then it just completely did not turn out as expected from pretty much day one. Is that I, I have yet to meet someone who went through that that didn't say in retrospect, "Yeah, there were a bunch of red flags," and I think I just I just kind of ignored them because I you know was too excited by the opportunity or, or you know, just really thought it was going to work out or like was willing to do the work to make <laughs> it work. And, and then in retrospect, it's like, yeah, I should have just listened to my gut. It just, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing to me that we, you know, even for those events that don't turn out, we, you know, we're better at detect them. As you said, I think particularly in advisor world, cause you tend to get pretty good at reading people just for sitting across with so many clients and prospects that, There always seems to be a gut signal that was there. And if you ignore your gut, it's surprising how often it really doesn't turn out well and that
2: you should have just trusted your gut. That's so true. It's so true. And it's human nature to kind of argue with ourselves. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, and and I I think in
1: this world of being advisors and wanting to help people, that that tendency of like, I want to try to see the good in people and help them, I, I think probably makes us even more prone to definitely blindsiding ourselves or fooling ourselves or, or is succumbing to not trusting our guts. Cause we want to, we want to believe good in people and that we can help them. And then sometimes often find out like, Nope, gut was right. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's unfortunate. Yeah. Gut was right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's well, it's water under the bridge at this point, but boy, was it a learning experience at the time?
1: Yeah. And I, and I guess, you know, the, the overall message went out there is, you know, think about partnership or on a of partnership. Like if you have not signed on the dotted line for whatever transition you're making, it's not too late to trust your gut.
2: Oh, definitely. Listen to it. Take a step back. Like there's, there's no fire here that you got to do something today. And if, if it feels like there is a fire, then there's, that's another red flag.
1: Yeah. So, so you're living this kind of tortured life you're in Wisconsin, your clients are mostly still in Vermont, you've got a a wife and one-year-old at home while you're flying a couple nights a week, every week out to Vermont to try to maintain the stuff over there, which doesn't take long before that's a really painful grind and completely exhausting and not a very pleasant work family life. So so what comes next?
2: Yeah, so... I was forced cuz like I was I was really getting tired of missing time with my family. I don't know if you've got kids, Michael, but they grow up super fast. Yes. And I just don't want to miss special moments with my family. So I really wanted to like is there a better way to do this? Do I really have to fly out all the time? So initially I just had my my staff in Vermont have clients come in to that office and we set up a webcam and they would put like this computer monitor on the around conference table. And then I would, you know, dial in from here and it worked and it started saving me time. And then I'm like, wow, there's, there's something to this. So I started doing more research online. Like what's this whole digital marketing thing? What's that? What's a website. And you know, I, I guess technically you could consider me a millennial. I don't know. There's some debate on that given when I was born, but I am not the most tech savvy person in the world. Like my, my bachelor's degree is in archeology span and anthropology, right? They don't use computers. They use like brushes and, you know, I, w- I was going to be Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. So a little, little different. So, I just started like going down this, this path of trying to figure out a better way to run my business and not have to travel all the time so I could get some of my life back.
1: So was this mostly about like digital marketing, growing your clients more virtually or just digital practice? Like, oh my Lord, can I just figure out a way to would meet with my clients? Some of my clients in Vermont without flying to Vermont. So maybe i can only fly <laughs> there every other week instead of every week. Like, was it, was it more
2: that end it was, it started there. Like, how can I just like manage my current practice with technology? How can I start leveraging tech? So that was the initial journey. And then like, I'm like, well, I'm already a thousand miles away. Why, why can't I work with clients elsewhere? And then I start hearing stories of some of my contemporaries doing some pretty cool things. Like, I don't know if you know, Jason Wank. Yeah. Cool guy has done some really cool stuff. And so I started reading blogs about him and what he was doing. And then Jeff Rose, I started seeing what that guy was up to and chatted with him. I actually chatted with Jason and Jeff, both when they were much earlier on in their journeys. And it was really cool. So I just, I just, it, it was a slow progression though, because the world I come from, like tech wasn't really used. We were still taught to have like a yellow pad and meet face to face in front of a client, no matter where they are. So I was you know, almost kind of bucking the trend a little bit because even today, most advisors are still taught to drive everywhere, have in-person meetings, kitchen table meetings, that kind of thing. So it's not the norm. It was not what was taught or really an accepted practice in our industry. You have your outliers as always, but it was not the norm.
1: So so what like what was the starting point of just I want to cut down on this travel. I got to get a little bit more virtually savvy. Where did it start? Like, what did you, what did you start out doing? I get that eventually led you down to this whole virtual rabbit hole. Like where did you get started as, as you said, like not being the most tech savvy person and trying to figure out how to do more
2: of this tech stuff. I kind of fell into it. I do like to research. I like getting like reading and I try to read a book a week. So I'm always trying to educate myself. So as soon as I saw that there was something to this whole, like, hey, I can service my clients remotely, huh? Well, what else can I do? And then I start researching. The problem is, is that there's nothing really at that time, and even today, there's very little out there on how to do all of it. So I'm really kind of cutting my teeth here, and you know, it starts with like, all right, well. I have to maintain my current clients because they need my help. And I've made a promise and a commitment to helping them, but I still want to grow my business. So how do I do that by not being physically everywhere? And then that leads to that rabbit hole. Like, well, you're supposed to have a website and you're supposed to do this thing called digital marketing, search engine optimization. What is that? You know, social media. What? Like I fought social media, forever. I didn't want a Facebook page. I kind of value my privacy given that I'm in such a public role with my clients. Like the first couple of years in the industry, I refused to get a cell phone even. I really didn't want anything to do with it. So yeah, so it, it's like a roundabout journey, like going down a path Oh, that didn't work. So I'm going to go over on this one now and see what happens.
1: So, so did this start with like, Go to meeting and just like doing virtual webcam meetings with with clients. Like, what was the yeah? You know, what was the first thing you actually implemented to say, "Oh, geez, I have to do something different because this hurts."
2: Yep. First thing was I I had used Skype for like chatting with family because we, we lived in Vermont for a while and all of our family is back in the Midwest. So we'd use Skype for that stuff. I, I had family internationally. So we had tried to communicate that way. So I was like, okay, I got this thing called Skype and I can do video stuff with it. So I went out and bought a $29 webcam for my office in Vermont. And I bought the exact same webcam for my office in Wisconsin. And initially we didn't even do meetings. I just had that so I could have like, literally what we would do. So it's kind of funny is my staff there would have Skype on their entire shift with a video or like a little box window of me and then vice versa. I'd have one on in my office. So instead of jumping on the phone, every whatever, 10 oh. minutes to talk about this or that, we would just have this thing sure. Skype where we could talk to each other. <laughs> so that's just always on.
1: So like it's, it's the equivalent of, it's as though we're in adjacent cubicles and are shouting over the wall. It's just the wall happens to be like a thousand miles apart, connected
2: by the internet. Totally, totally. And I was like, "Wow, this is pretty cool. All right, this this works. I'm not running up a huge long distance phone bill. Okay." And then it slowly but surely progressed into client meetings, but I was still having the clients go to my physical office in Vermont. Oh, so. <laughs> Then client client meetings, but the client meeting was the client went to
1: your office, sat in front of the webcam that you bought for the office, <laughs> and you yes. would meet with them there. Yes. Okay. Awesome. I love I love it. So <laughs> like I just like, how did that go? I, like or even just telling clients that's how you're going to do it. Like I still want you to come to the office and meet with me, but I'm not going to be there. But a
2: camera for me <laughs> will be there. It was weird. And there were definitely some moments where they're like, you could even see like the couple looking at each other, like, what is going on here? This is kind of odd. Cause in Vermont, all of my meetings were either at the client's home business or at my office all in person. So that's what they had been used to from me for years. And all of a sudden now they're talking into this webcam, like what is going on here? So, so what came next in the evolution then? So
1: like first, I bought a webcam for each office. We like digitally connected them literally live feeds. So like I could talk to my team when we're not there, then, well, Hey, this live video feed thing works. So let's tell the clients come in and sit in front of the webcam. And then we get to do a virtual meeting with the client. So how did the, how did the tech evolve next?
2: Yeah. I had some old computers. Like it was a big deal for me when I upgraded to two monitors and I did that while I was in still in Vermont and Yeah. Literally just, you know, we did that. We ran that for a while because it worked okay. And then like I I started getting like, this is a little bit tangential here, but I, I really started questioning like, man, do I really need a brick and mortar office in Vermont? Do I really need physical staff there? Because you still have the headaches just because I'm not physically there. I still have an office that has to be maintained. I still have staff that gets sick or can't show up because of, you know, they broke a toenail or whatever. So I just really started questioning that model because after doing these virtual meetings for a while, I'm like, okay, this is starting to work better. I don't have to physically be there as much. What else can I start changing? So did you...
1: Did you lose any clients in this transition?
2: Almost none. I think other than clients passing away, I think I, I only remember one that left because I moved. Interesting. Which was pretty cool. cool. And I was deathly afraid of it. I was deathly afraid that I would have this mass exodus. I was just saying, I
1: feel like most of us would be, would be terrified that, like, first of all, I've left. Second... I'm not coming back. And just in case it wasn't clear whether or not I'm coming back, you're, you're talking to me on a video feed from Wisconsin. But <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not coming back. You can read between the lines pretty quickly here. So I it sounds like, like you got there out of sheer necessity and desperation. I just can't take the back and forth flying anymore. And then as it turned out, there wasn't a mass exodus and clients weren't, weren't leaving.
2: Well, no, ex- that's it. I was like, oh, this is okay. People are cool with this. And some clients didn't want to do the virtual meeting. They just were happy with a conference call and like a screen share. So I'm like, that's cool. We'll do that. You know, whatever works. And then, you know, over time, the ones that truly needed an in-person meeting, either I would fly out there, but I haven't been out there. It'll be two years in a couple of weeks, two years since I've been physically in Vermont. Wow. Yeah.
1: So so I guess there was was like an intermediate period of – okay, we're mostly video chatting, but if there's a real big issue, I'm still going to fly back to Vermont. And then at some point everyone gets so used to it that even when it's a bigger issue, there's just really no expectation of flying back and forth anymore because it's been two years and you haven't been back.
2: Exactly. I was able to slowly transition out. So then it was, you know, every couple months and then, well, now not at all. So it, it, yeah, it was definitely a progression Partly because I was deathly afraid that people were going to leave. So I almost had this self-imposed pressure, like, I have to go. I have to be there. And it turns out I didn't.
1: So, and I'm presuming that at some point this shifted from all the clients coming into your office to do the the video feeds to your other office to, they just started doing it from wherever their home or office or their own webcams are as, as just webcams became more ubiquitous.
2: Exactly. I I think I timed it almost perfectly by complete accident, but technology really has sped up and evolved over the last 20 years for sure. But even in the last five to 10 years, like our phones, our computers all basically come with webcams now. Right. So it was, it was funny. I was doing a virtual meeting with a, an older client two months ago and been, we were on the phone at, at first. I'm like, well, do you have a webcam? She's like, I, I don't know. I'm like, all right, get, get your laptop out. I'm like, is there a little dot, a little circle in the middle at the top of your computer? She had a laptop. She's like, yeah, there's a piece of plastic over it. I never knew what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's good that it had plastic over it. So she wasn't like <laughs> accidentally spy camming herself or something. <laughs> so, it, yeah, I mean, so it, 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 everyone's pretty much got the infrastructure. So I timed it. Completely out of sheer luck that that works. So, yes, that's what happened. Like, it was this combination of I don't want the overhead and stress of staff in a physical office. And this virtual thing seems to be working. So, why not continue and see if I can just meet with people at their homes now virtually? And, like,
1: did you have clients that were sort of holdouts or pushbacks? Did you get a. Yeah. I, know, I think the perception out there is a big age skew, like. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You're like your 40 year olds are doing this, Derek, but you know, my 70, 60, and 70 year old retired clients ain't going to do this.
2: Some of them, there was resistance, but the band aid that worked, that still works, was conference calls where we'll do like literally we'll do a conference call and then I will send them a link because they most of them have email even the older generations, they've all, cause they want to stay in touch with their grandkids, right? They're on Facebook. Right. They got to have an email. So I, I send them a link. All they have to do is click the link and then they can, atle- I can share my screen still. They can see what I'm telling them. We're, we're looking at the exact okay. same stuff, but we're just over the phone with the older ones, the younger ones. It was like, uh, yeah, I'd rather do this. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want you coming to my house at night either.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so what does that eventually do to the Vermont office? Does that mean at some point you really did start to wind down the Vermont office because you're not going out there and at some point even clients
2: aren't coming in there because they're webcamming this from their homes? That's exactly right. Yeah, I kind of pushed me here and trying to figure out when the, the time was, but I have not had physical staff. It's got to be pushing three years now.
1: So how did that how did that wind down, or what was the transition point?
2: Well, it just seemed like like well the the staff member I had at that time that was there because I'd already gotten rid of one, and then the one that was there, her husband retired, and she was younger, but he he retired, and I think that was kind of like the writings on the wall, like she's kind of looking for a way out, anyways. So it was just kind of a natural progression. And instead of me freaking out and not accepting the resignation or looking for someone to replace them, I said, thank you. Great. Best of luck to you in retirement. And I did not replace the staff member at that time. I still had the physical location, but I wasn't really going there. I just locked it all up. And yeah. So so help me
1: understand that, I mean, there's kind of two pieces here. There's do I still need the Vermont office and staff because I'm not actually going to Vermont office very much anymore and neither of my clients because we're doing this virtual thing. And then there's just, do I need staff? Cause like clients still need things and have questions and there's work to be done. Yeah. And at some point we have too many clients to do all of this ourselves. So like, was this about dialing down staff or was this just about dialing down Vermont staff because you were getting people in Wisconsin or you were just like starting to hire virtual staff and stuff.
2: I did not start hiring virtual people yet. I had kicked around the idea, but never did anything with it. And I figured if I was going to hire a new staff person, I might as well have them sitting next to me in Wisconsin. So that's what I did. Again, I didn't question the old model. I'm like, all right, well I have to have staff. So the other one retired in Vermont and I hired a new person here in Wisconsin, physical, physical staff, you know, full-time benefits, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, paid for the office next to me to have them and all that stuff. And that only lasted about four months. It was not a good fit. They were not the person I thought they were. And so I, I ended up having to fire that person. Okay. But at that time, I'm like, okay, pause. What am I doing here? All right. I've got an opportunity to make some changes. I'm not going to do what's not working anymore. I'm tired of the high overhead and expense and distraction of physical staff. There's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when I really started diving deep into looking at virtual staff. Because, yes, you are right. I can't do everything. And I'm not good at, like, operations and service work. That's not what my – I don't have a CFP for that, right? Right. Right. I need to rely on, on help still to do the other things. So that's why I took a hard look at getting virtual staff and just jumped in both feet right away. I'm like, yep, this is the way I'm going to do it. It's a lot less expensive. Oh man, this yeah is the way to go.
1: Because by this point you've, you've gotten used to being with staff virtually because it was Wisconsin to Vermont. You've gotten used to dealing with clients virtually because it's, wisconsin to, to vermont clients are kind of used to dealing with some of your team and support virtually because you're already starting to move staff to wisconsin so everybody's kind of sort of gotten used to the fact that everybody's somewhere else
2: exactly yeah <laughs> and remember none of this was really by design <laughs> initially so so from a practical perspective what
1: what came next like I know how I hire my next local person. I put a job a job ad out in sure. local paper or Monster or Indeed or whatever the yeah. job site of the of the year is. And, you know, one of those easy ways to filter those is either they actually are in the vicinity of our office or are going to be able to do the commute or not. You know, like there's 300 million people in the U.S. How do you find one to work with you virtually? Because that's a lot of people to sift through.
2: It is. So my first, like, slot I wanted to fill was what I call an executive administrator, someone that kind of is a catch-all. They're helping with scheduling. They're helping with client service, all manner of like behind the scenes operations stuff. So I figured if I'm going to have somebody that's doing all that, but also is going to be speaking with clients, I want them to speak English as a first language. And it would be kind of nice to have them in the same time zone. So I literally just got on Google and Googled virtual assistants near me. And I found two firms, uh, actually in Madison of all places, which was kind of nice. Interviewed both firms and ended up going with one and got hooked up with a, a virtual assistant from there. And I, I just got to ask so, like, you're, you're,
1: you're getting ready to find a virtual assistant. You can work with anyone in the world. Maybe ideally the country. Maybe ideally the time zone. No geographic constraints whatsoever in any way, shape, or form. So your starting search was virtual assistant near me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was. And I, I think. And, and, that, you, and you found a virtual assistant in town. Okay. Yeah. I Like just, just want to understand the context here. Okay.
2: <laughs> and like, again, like I, I'm imposing these issues on myself. Cause I'm, again, I'm a little worried. Like, I'm like, is this going to work? I'm again, there's no model out there. Right, right, right. I understand. There's kind of a safety net of like,
1: and you know, if I really want to see if I'm comfortable with them, like I can just go up the street and, and meet with them and have coffee. Exactly. Still local. And, like I can <laughs> I can vet them cause they're local. Like, sure. I, I
2: get it. Yeah, totally. So like, I, again, I'm, I'm building this model as I go. So yes, yeah, so that's what I did. And it worked really well. And it continues to do so, but that firm ended up changing what like their business model and who they really wanted to work with. So sadly, I had to part ways with them earlier this year. And it it really was sad because they were fantastic, great people, great at what they did. I never had any issues. I had all my clients interacted with my staff from that firm, had just great things to say about them. Like they've never met people in person, but so many, and that's, that was always my barometer, right? That was my litmus test was what are my clients saying about this virtual staff thing? Right. And it was always good, really good feedback. So I did that and I added an executive administrator. Then I added a virtual receptionist second, almost right away, actually. And then I ended up hiring a digital marketing team. Because I've been messing around with websites and SEO and all this like blogging and stuff. I'm like, all right, I don't have time to do all this. I got to have the experts help me. So with that, I was more comfortable looking outside of my direct area. And I have, you mentioned South Africa earlier. I My mom grew up in South Africa. I've been there countless times. So I've, I've got a real affinity for the country and for the people. You know, you hear a lot about people hiring virtual assistants from like India or the Philippines and all that. And that's great. It works. But I'm like, all right, well, does South Africa have virtual assistants? So I literally just Googled South Africa virtual assistants to see what I could find. Again, found two firms, interviewed them virtually, ended up up going with one. And now I've got a full team there that does all my digital marketing. And then through them, I got a a developer who's based in Cyprus.
1: And so what what
2: led i mean aside from hey south africa sounds like an
1: interesting country sort of like like the people think it's interesting like what what pulled you there or what was the appeal there or the appeal of not virtual digital marketing assistant near me or or virtual digital marketing assistant u.s or north america like was there a you wanted to be further away was there like a goal of geographic arbitrage of pricing hey yeah, so I don't know if cost of living is lower there, so the staff would be less expensive. Like what was
2: driving this? D- definitely part of that is it's much less expensive. Well, in general, just to even have virtual staff in general, it's much less expensive, whether they're in the U.S. or not. But the virtual team in South Africa is a fraction of what I would pay for the same services for a U.S.-based team. So as a business owner, I want to get the best return on my my investment on my business. So I don't have I'm, – I'm no longer beholden to a country, a, geo, a geographic location. So I went there and looked and was very happy with it. So that – but then also the time zone difference. They're working while I'm sleeping. Well, I was going to ask, like, is that – is this a good thing or a bad thing? Like, how do you handle the
1: fact that – that They're so far away. I mean, I think South Africa is like, what, seven or eight hours ahead of, of U.S. time zones?
2: Yeah. like So during Daylight Savings now, they're eight hours ahead of us. Otherwise, they're seven, which actually works out really well. A team in the Philippines or India, you're looking at a much greater time zone difference. So there's almost no overlap of when you can actually communicate with them in real time, where with seven or eight hours – when I, because I get to the office about seven fifteen in the morning, I can communicate with them, and they're still working away. They've been working all day, and then, like tomorrow, for example, I have an eight fifteen meeting my time with my team in South Africa. So, how does this
1: work for clients, though? Because now, like my client who emails me with a question at two o'clock in the afternoon, like it's ten o'clock in South Africa. So. Is that client just not getting a response until tomorrow?
2: Well, those, so that's the thing. The client face, so I I have a new digital or virtual executive administrator, but she's based in Texas. So I did that earlier this year when I made the transition from the other firm. So she's in my time zone. I've never met her. She's in Texas. And what's great is I did all the interviews because I interviewed a bunch of firms when I was looking to make the change. I was in Ireland when I was doing the interviews. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, so the team in South Africa is specifically around things like the digital marketing, because that is far away and on a different timing. So this is not a problem if exactly. we're working at hours askew, like this isn't a live client service issue. This is a, how are we building our you know marketing projects for the
2: coming month? Exactly. Right. So they, they are not client facing. So we are not dealing with any fires or, you know, client right, right, right. things that come up. So, so.
1: So how did you find the virtual assistant in Texas then? Is this a a solo person? Is this like a firm or
2: a service? They're part of a firm. The firm is called Red Butler. And before I went to Ireland for a long family trip in August of this year. And before I left, I knew that my virtual assistant situation was going to change. So I literally Googled again virtual assistants USA this time. Not not near me, <laughs> but USA. And there are quite a few, but not a whole lot that are actually that good, to be honest. Hmm. So I shortlisted, I think it was like four or five firms that I wanted to talk to. I set up those interviews while in Ireland. I, I worked out of a co-working space there for a week while I was on the on the vacation and just did my my virtual interviews with all the firms from there narrowed down the people that I liked and end up ultimately going with this, this, this lady in Texas, who's part of the red Butler system. Okay. So, so red Butler
1: is like a platform for virtual assistants, and then you can work with them more deeply specifically to figure out like who in particular will it be because exactly. they give you a, like an assigned person as opposed to just uh a dial-in desk or something.
2: Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, I've got a dedicated person that works for me X hours a month, period. It's So uh, it's always the same person. And that's what I was looking for. What I found is that working with a staffing firm, virtual staffing firm, is better than working with like a an independent, you know, freelance type of situation. For example, the previous firm I was with, my main staff member went on maternity leave. So um, they took care of bringing someone else on board and training them. It was a seamless transition and just done. Now, if I had been working with a freelance person, I would have been responsible for doing all that myself.
1: Uh, so that that's the appeal of being with a service or just a larger firm is, you know, not only can they help me find the person that I'm going to work with on their, on their team, but if that person has an issue, it's, it's their problem. It's not mine. My, yep. I just get to be the client that says, well, I, I hope y'all have a plan B because I <laughs> expect to have the same service while that
2: person's out. So, y'all y'all should figure that out and let, let me know how that goes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, so it's very very seamless. So I I, I mean I, I would suggest anyone listening if they're going to do a, a virtual staff definitely go with a firm. Don't go with a freelance. Not that there aren't great freelance people out there. I like having some. I mean, good business running a good business means you've got robust risk management, you know, controls in place, and that's one of them is I got to have staff sorted correctly.
1: So so you started hiring a virtual assistant for sort of these. Executive to administrative client, administrative support work, and I, I guess the other thing I'd ask, like, how much are they doing relative to the the business? Like, I'm just wondering, like, are they down to new account forms and transfer forms and the kinds of things that, for industry or industry, depending on how you're registered, are like registered persons roles? Like, do you draw some lines between, hey, you can book my client meetings and my, you know, airline tickets, but I need someone else who's actually going to do the account administration transfer forms and that kind of stuff because that's, that's FINRA or SEC brokerage paperwork.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I pretty much have them do everything except the registered stuff like that. Cause I just, I don't like touching that and they're not licensed, so, like, I have, a, I have background checks done on them, and they get into the system and all that. So they, ha- they have their own credentials to look at all of my systems. They can access all the security systems and things like that for statements and tax records and all that okay. stuff. But when it comes to transfer, I mean, and that's the other thing is all of my applications are e-applications at this point, and they have been for a while. So it's all just part of the, the, the application. So it's not taking me any extra time to do that. It's, you know, it's all electronic at this point, which has been fantastic.
1: So you've got a virtual assistant doing sort of administrative stuff. You've got a virtual digital marketing team, including a virtual developer, helping you on the, the marketing support side. So have you
2: added others and gone further down this rabbit hole now? Virtual receptionist. So someone will answer the my phone from 8 to 5 every day. So, and then I I have that forwarded and I, because of the infrastructure and tech I have in place, I can return those phone calls from anywhere in the world and they think I'm calling from Madison.
1: And, and what, what person or services you end up using for virtual receptionist?
2: It used to be separated earlier on, but then doing all my research, Red Butler actually has another silo of services, which is the virtual reception. So I ended up doing that and by bundling, it actually ended up saving me a little bit of money.
1: Okay. Okay. So that bundles in receptionist, answering calls, assistant, doing administrative support, digital marketing developer. Are there other pieces on top of this?
2: Not really. No. Like, you know, cause like, and part of the digital marketing is like, I also have a content manager. So part of that digital marketing team is they actually write all my, a lot of my content for me under my direction. Okay. So, so like that digital marketing team has different people. There's, three at least, depending on what we're doing, sometimes four or five people on that team doing a variety of different things for the business. Okay. So, so what's left for you? Like what, what is, what is your typical
1: day or maybe week look like in, in the practice at this point? Like what's, what's still on your plate that you do?
2: So. I'm pretty active on social media to just build awareness about who I am, what I do, and, you know, really marketing towards my ideal client. So I'm active doing that. I build the financial plans and I conduct client meetings. So that's, you know, I I do pretty much. And I guess like a tiny
1: bit of paperwork for account transfers, trading and such, because those are the, the registered investment activities.
2: Exactly. As those things come in, we'll do that. I try to set up as much of that electronically from the get-go. So if I get in a call or an email, like it's just done. It's it's 20 seconds on my computer and whatever request is done is done.
1: And so, so talk to us now about Building the business because like this started it sounds like as very much a virtual for you started as I just got to do virtual operations because I up and moved my family to Wisconsin for a merger that ended up <laughs> going horribly and all my clients and staff are still in Vermont and this flying back and forth thing is exhausting me so it went your webcam for staff, then webcam for clients, then webcams directly. I'm not even sure we need the office. And then like, geez, if I can do all this stuff virtually with my team, I may as well just hire a virtual teams So we get virtual assistants near me and then red Butler in South Africa. It's like, I, I kind of get the whole operations end. And obviously clients that are, that were with you, as you said, like stayed with you. So thank goodness, you know, yeah. what, oh, yeah, so how does growth work? going forward? Like, are you marketing locally in Wisconsin? You built your local Wisconsin market the way you built your local Vermont market and your team is simply virtual because that's how you're building or is, is new client growth different as well?
2: New client growth is all virtual now. I don't go to networking events. I don't do coffees. I'm usually in the office, it's about 7.15 and I'm usually out of the office by about one thirty. Just because I don't have to spend as much time waste, like driving, for example. Like the amount of time wasted driving is crazy in this business. So I'm just working more efficiently. So all of my marketing efforts are digital. I have two websites. I have a blogging website and my corporate website. I have strong social media presence. And I'm just continuing to work those. Well, and, I, and, I, and I love the,
1: the website, Intrepid Wealth Partners. We'll have a link out for it for anybody who wants to go. Take a look because it, it, it is pretty cool to see. So this is episode 155. So if you go to kidsus.com/155, we'll have a, a link out to Derek's website. But I just love because like you you hit the homepage, and the homepage of the website is the first thing it says is your virtual wealth partner. <laughs> like right there, not your wealth partner, your virtual wealth partners. Like we're just getting it really clear up front. Like It's not in your face. It's not like it's like bold with dancing font or anything, but just like it says right there out of the gate, your virtual wealth partner. So the virtual thing's kind of on the table. And then it says partnering with CEOs, founders, and business owners who are creating our future.
2: Yes. So I guess
1: you've, you've kind of gone all in into some kind of niche or specialization around CEOs, founders, and business owners. That's now becoming
2: the thing. I have, but even more so, so you'll appreciate this. I was listening to a recording you did a couple weeks ago. It was a webinar of sorts. And you used the analogy of the ideal client bus, the school bus. Yes. And I loved that. That was just like, it was almost an epiphany moment for me, Michael. So I have to thank you for this. I have, I have struggled since day one to define an ideal client. And, you know, cause people talk about all the time, like, well, who's your ideal client? And then every advisor I talk to says, well, I work with families and business owners. <laughs> like, uh, So you work with everybody.
1: Yeah. Family, small business owners, retirees, institutions, and women
2: just to make sure we get
1: all the popular specializations
2: in there. Right. Totally. Right. So, and that, that's no advisor's fault really. I mean, I was subject to the same thing. It's just like, like we're not taught how to define an ideal client really. Well, I,
1: I, I mean, I think, Certainly, if you've been in more than about 15 years or so, you 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 came in like I did in, in a more product centric future, like a qualified prospect was someone who can afford to buy what you're selling. Yes. And, and I feel like we basically carried that over a lot of us, to the AUM model with the same thing. Like, who's your target ideal client? People who like to delegate and have at least a million dollars. Like that's... <laughs> It's really still the same <laughs> definition. Like my ideal client are people who can afford to pay me and are willing to do so. Like, okay, but
2: <laughs> we need Why to get a little bit. That, right? We need to get a little bit
1: more focused than this to figure out how you're really trying to narrow down. So, so like, what led you in this direction of of you know putting forth this bold statement, like partnering with CEOs, founders, and business owners who are creating our future. It's got a nice aspirational kick to it, but like CEOs, founders, and business owners. Like it's right there on the homepage.
2: Yeah, it's pretty clear. And, and it's gonna get clearer if you look in the next week or two as I update it even a little bit more because of your webinar that I listened to. I don't need a thousand clients. I don't want a thousand clients. That that's that's a whole nother bear to, to to deal with. So I kind of look at it as this, like I I want this, and I'm instead of using the bus analogy, I have I have kind of stolen your idea, and I'm using like my private plane analogy. Like I have a plane with a hundred seats on it, and I want to fill it with a certain type of client. Mm-hmm. And I love that analogy; it just makes sense. It's easy to figure out, and now I only need a hundred clients, you know, ideal clients, if you will. So really, defining that initially, it started off with like just the founders and CEOs of startup companies because, well, one Madison's kind of a hotbed for that. Right. A lot of startup activity here, a lot of venture capital cash coming in. And I just was really fascinated with the whole journey they go on Mm -hmm. the hard work that they go through. And I saw a little, a lot of similarities to like being an advisor and building an advisory practice. Like it's not nine to five, you can go months with no income. You're stressed. You're, you're, you're not sure what's going to happen in the future. So I saw a lot of similarities. So I understood these people and felt like, well, gosh, no one else is really trying to help them. And I should, cause I kind of get them. And now I'm just trying to just hone that down even more. So one of the things that I'm adding to this profile is working with these CEOs, founders, and so forth that are frequent flyers, Cause I still, I fly a lot, but most of it's for fun at this point. And again, on this epiphany moment, I was on fortunate enough to be in, in first class on my trip to South Africa. And I had just gone to the bathroom and I'm walking through the first class cabin and I'm looking across all these seats. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is my school bus. <laughs> uh, these are the people I want to work with. And I'm like, thank you, Michael. I got it now. They're literally in the first class cabin with you, like they are yeah, yeah.
1: Nice, <laughs> right here. These are my these are my prospects and people, and, and I love it because like one of the things on your website, like your homepage, has you know our services. So we do financial planning, investment management, insurance solutions, and retirement income planning, and sky miles planning
2: yes like it's one of
1: your five services like it's literally right between the financial planning and the retirement income planning is sky miles planning like we'll do a sky miles review for you of like your miles whether you're leveraging the systems help you track them teach the different flyer programs show you how to leverage them like well i i get it because you know if, if you're a ceo founder who has to do the road warrior thing that a lot of business founders and ceos have to do like you rack up a ton of miles, it's at least one of the slight perks. Like, use it. <laughs> use, <laughs> use it. Exactly. You're, you're living it. Use it. Let me help you get the most out of your perks.
2: Exactly. Yep. So I, I, I don't look as any other advisor in the industry as competition. We're all here to kind of help each other, and there's more than enough business out there. So having this ideal client really is – is a weight off my shoulders in a way because all I, I know who I need to focus on. I'm super niche. So I don't need to worry about like trying to go after everyone like everyone else is. So it's really been a great, like, and,
1: and part of the relief for you is cause, cause I only have to find a hundred of them. So I'm just not stressing
2: that much. Exactly. Right. Like, like, you know, like I used to be told in the early days, like it's a race to 500 clients. Yeah. Like that's great, but now you've got 500 clients. That's a ton of service work. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and, I mean, there is this piece to it that I, I like. I've just I've observed in the industry for a lot of years now that there's all this, well, discussion about growth, pressure to grow. Yeah, you know, we put growthy firms up on a pedestal, and when you really drill down and look, I find all, almost all of this at the end of the day comes from our. Our platforms, like our insurance companies, our broker dealers, our RA custodians that, you know, have awards for fastest growing firms and prizes for top producers and all this stuff that puts the the growth on the pedestal and kind of makes it feel like, you know, if you're, if you're not growing and crushing the growth formula, you're somehow failing and not succeeding as an advisor and just totally ignores like once you get a decent base of clients, you can make a kind of stupid amount of money. By completely not (laughs) growing anymore and just making awesome money serving, you know, the hundred clients on your bus, the hundred clients on your on your private plane. And it creates this misalignment because as an advisor, look, once I get to the point where I'm making good income, like for a lot of people, I'm good. Like my lifestyle is where I want it to be. I enjoy the work that I'm doing and what I'm doing and who I'm doing it for and what I'm making off It's like, I'm good. I don't need to grow anymore. Now, if you're a platform, if you're a large firm in a world where the total headcount of advisors has basically been flat for a decade, the only way you grow as a platform is poach advisors from other platforms, which is really expensive because you got to recruit them away and and do that whole thing, or – Log all your current advisors to do whatever you can to make them grow because if they grow you grow since you get a piece of their business like that's that's ultimately how all platforms work by some way shape or form they get a piece of your growth of your growing revenue or client assets or production or whatever it is and so we like we we get to this misalignment where once you've been doing it for a while you may get to a point where you're good on income and the business is where you want it to be your platform's business is not where your platform wants it to be and so they extol growth, even though you may not need it and and I, and I think it's an interesting just juxtaposition that you you seem to have made that transition, got like gotten off that roller coaster, gotten comfortable in getting off that roller coaster. and you know more power to the people out there who just genuinely are super excited to build ginormous businesses and hire and train and develop a lot of people and manage them all and manage the business and the rest. Like if that's your thing, Go
2: like, for it, right? Yeah. Go for
1: it. Be yeah. your entrepreneurial you. But I find most advisors, that's really not actually how they are. Like often the growth comes down to well, I I feel like I'm I feel like I'm failing if I'm not growing and not hitting those those charts and not getting that yeah. recognition. And it's like you realize that's kind of the game they set up for you. Like that you're you're not playing your terms and your success you're playing the, you're playing the platforms terms of
2: success. The platform and just the culture in general, right? It's one thing that's bothered me for a long time. I didn't really articulate it until the last couple of years is that this industry, we are taught to go help our clients through the services and products that we offer, do everything that's important to them. You know, whatever their hopes, dreams, and goals are for the future, this, we are taught to go help them do that. What we're not told about, you know, throughout this entire journey that we're on is that we have to put our lives on hold as advisors to do that. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute here. Like, what the heck? Like the, that doesn't make sense. You're telling me like, I got to work 60 hours a week. I got to miss my son's school activities. I, I I don't get to do date night with my wife. I got to miss life for the next five or 10 years while I'm building this thing like that, that doesn't make sense. And then maybe I'm beholden to working these crazy hours for the rest of my life because I built this, this behemoth of a business that owns me. And that's, what's one of the beautiful things about the virtual model is that like I got all my time back. I am traveling with my family, you know, all over the world. I was doing financial plans on the bullet train in Japan earlier this year. It's just a totally different way of doing it, and it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't help our clients, but I'm not saying we should put our. I, what I am saying is that we shouldn't put our whole our lives on hold to do it. It should be a mutually beneficial relationship.
1: Well, it strikes me that there's really like two things that have shifted in your firm. One is one is the virtual effect. So I don't need to have the office space, and and I don't have to be responsible for hiring, training, developing staff because now I've got a service that does it. And if there's turnover, it's their job to find the next person and hire them and train them and involve them. So like, I just, I just get my service hours to get stuff done that I need to get done. So, you know, less stress around just the management of staff and people when you need at least a little bit of, of help in what you're doing. But the other thing that, that strikes me just around this, this conversation is like, you're now talking about, like, I just want to get to my 100 ideal clients and, I think you said like you were already at two hundred clients, like two years in, which would be about thirteen years ago or, or right. eleven years ago or something. <laughs> so you know the you know by a classic growthy perspective, like got to two hundred clients my first two years, haven't netted a single another one in eleven since. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know that's part of because. You're getting some folks on who are founders and CEOs and fit this target demographic that you want, while some of the people who move on are the ones that maybe weren't as good of a fit, because in those first few years, we pretty much take anybody who can fog a mirror. So, so some of that is, is, a, is a rotation. But well, and I guess I'm wondering, like, how, like how high did it get on your client count? And, and where is it now? Like, how many clients is it today? And, and how big was it when you had all the staff?
2: I think we, we had individual like names, like social security numbers of, I want to say around a thousand, maybe 1100. Wow. And it was just a bear and you know, some of them didn't require a lot. Right. But they're still there. And when when you got a thousand of them, like. Hey, you can say
1: they're really low maintenance and like they basically only call once a year. Like it's hardly anything like, well, okay, but (laughs) a dozen people who call once a year is a thousand (laughs) phone calls. And so if each of these just take like a half an hour or an hour here and there for the phone call and then whatever the little follow up work is that you need to do, that's basically a full time staff member totally 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 (laughs) just to deal with those and that's only if they have easy questions that don't actually float up to you if you know 10 or 20 percent of these are harder questions that float up to you and take you a few hours then supporting these thousand clients actually obliterates 30 to 50 percent of your year and the only 10 or 20 percent clients who only have a question every year or two because the sheer mass of how many that still floats up
2: exactly exactly it's a numbers game right and but that's how we're taught to build it initially like So, so now I'm actively working with and servicing maybe 200. Okay. So, you know, there have been some younger advisors, agents in the industry that needed some help and I didn't want to have as big a client base. So. I mean, I, I don't have anything against any clients. Well, I mean, there might have been a couple over the years that were really tough, but <laughs> for the most part, I mean, I, I love my clients and they've helped me get where I am in life today. But there are just some that, you know, you don't have that relationship with, yeah. like you do with the others. So those are the ones that I started to hand off to other advisors that are younger in the industry, that they're look they're more hungry, and it's been great.
1: And so that was what you did, like you just you start looking at this list and and every year you just take 50 or a hundred plus and say like, I'm, I'm just going to refer these out or hand these off.
2: Yep. Yep. Like I, I and- just literally did this two weeks ago. I had a list of a whole bunch of smaller account mutual fund clients and I, it was over a hundred people that I sent. And these are people that wasn't really taking up a ton of my time, but I sent it to this other advisor like, here, these are all yours. Go for it.
1: And so are these like, do you send them to other advisors in the New York life system? Are you doing like you rev shares and split rep codes on these? Do you just literally hand them off like this is you know, the 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 time it takes even for the occasional servicing for them just isn't isn't a good fit for me. So uh I'm just literally gonna hand them off and walk away from it because it's not enough revenue to have an impact.
2: Well, that's it, yeah. Pretty much like I, I would rather see these other younger agents survive, the advisors survive so Most of the time, yeah, it's in within within the New York Life Eagle system. But most of the time, it's literally here, take these. If you write any business in the first year, it's an MDRT split. You keep 80, I'll take 20%. Any referrals are yours, 100%. And after the first year, it's all yours. I don't want it. So there's a little bit of revenue there because they may need me in that first year.
1: To help support the handoff or to help support an initial business opportunity.
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm fine with that, but it's but it's giving them the lion's share because man, early on, there were a lot of senior advisors are like, well, we'll help you, but we get fifty percent of everything. I'm like, whoa, what the that doesn't seem fair, fifty <laughs> percent, and you're not even doing anything.
1: So, are you looking
2: to ultimately winnow the
1: like? Is the two hundred clients supposed to eventually winnow down even further? Or are you trying to narrow this more or? Are you yeah. kind of good where the number is?
2: I, I'm comfortable where it is. It's very manageable at this point. It's a great client base. Allows me to do everything that I want to do for growth and make sure that my family is taken care of. And But over time, it'll probably shrink still, though. As I, you know, like right now, I've got an airplane with, you know, 200 seats. And over time, I'd like to get a smaller airplane. And I'm going to be forced to start handing off some of those passengers.
1: And so out of curiosity, like how does... How does income with a thousand clients and all the staff and office that went with it compare to take home income for 200 clients with you and, and your virtual team? So my
2: income is 2019 would be my best year ever. And my overhead is a fraction and I don't mind sharing it. My overhead right now for my entire team. And I do have a small office that I rent outside of the house just because I, I like to get away and just have some peace and quiet. You know, I've got an eight-year-old and a dog at home, so it's... Yeah, it's not always quiet, yep. (laughs) It's not not always quiet, but it's just a small little, you know, simple space. But I pay about three grand a month for everything.
1: Wow, okay. And what is the revenue base? I guess, like, I'm wondering, what what does the revenue base look like? And just how is the revenue comprised at this point for you between, like, I know you're doing... Assets under management because you're on the the Eagle side of New York Life. I'm I'm presuming there's probably still some New York Life product that gets written because I, I think you technically have to write some to 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 keep your contract. You know, your website has a bunch around financial planning fees, flat fees, like comprehensive financial planning for 35 basis points on net worth. So you've got like lots of different parts of your business model now. So what like what does revenue look like or or how
2: does it allocate out? Yeah, it, it allocates out primarily on the financial planning and AUM side. That's where the bulk of the recurring revenue comes from. I do have trails, you know, from mutual funds and insurance stuff that I've, I do over the years. That is, a, I would say maybe 20 to 30% of my overall revenue comes from like that type of, you know, insurance-based stuff. So not a lot. And then, you know, yeah, financial planning. The one thing I have. I don't think I've ever actually charged for it is at the hourly rate. I have it advertised, but I've never actually charged an hourly rate.
1: So you do have clients that'll pay the 0.35% of net worth. Cause like, I'm assuming that basically got built for the business owner types. Cause they don't, they don't have assets they're going to give you, but they've got a significant net worth and they want advice.
2: Exactly. Yep. Yep. So you know that, and that's where it's flexible. Like I'm not like, I'm not saying like, well, the only way you can work with me is if you have assets that I can manage, because that that really kind of like that's nearsighted for me as a business owner. And it's kind of off putting to some of these people that are still trying to create their wealth. Um, So, yeah, so it's really just a combination of those different sources and. The other beautiful thing, because I've got such low overhead, is that I'm able to charge less to my clients. I'm able actually to pass these efficiencies on to my clients, so it makes me more competitive as well.
1: And so what is the, like if you're mostly financial planning and an AUM base, like what does the client AUM base look like at this point?
2: Like how much do I have in AUM? Yeah,
1: or I don't even know if like AUM is the right measure since you've also kind of got a an assets under advisement end from the... Charging a a small percentage of net worth for your business owner clients, but like however you look at it, a, AUM or AUA or some some measuring points around it. Yeah,
2: no, I I think there's about fifty million there that we're we're getting compensated on one way or another. Okay, so it's it's a modest practice. It's not a huge practice, and there are lots of advisors that have a lot more out there than I do, but they also have a lot higher overhead.
1: Right. So the distinction is, well, aside from whatever platform cut is that, that Eagle takes like your, your only remaining expenses after that, are like your, your whole overheads, like five or 10% of your business and you take home 90 cents on the dollar of whatever's left, basically. Pretty much. Yep. That's about right. So how do you, like, how would you characterize a firm like yours? You know, I know, I know some folks out there put out labels like lifestyle practice,
2: solopreneur, how do you think about it? We're a virtual financial planning practice. We we start with financial planning first. We do everything virtually. The entire infrastructure is built virtually, which caters to our clients. They're the ones that are always on the go and they don't have time to come into an office or drive across town or anything like that. Or And they don't want right. to come into their house or their office after a long week. Right. So yeah, we are a virtual, comprehensive financial planning practice. I, I don't know if I'd really put any other term on it other than virtual because that's that's one of our our unique points or selling points because not very many do it.
1: And so talk to me about what that's like in the context of of a large firm. Cuz I feel like a lot of people that have experimented with these kinds of models as well as like both like running a virtual business model, the dynamics of doing digital marketing online, charging alternative fee models like your, you know, 0.35% of net worth for for business owners. These are things that I think in practice we see most often in in independent channels. Just when the the span of compliance control is a little more straightforward because you're 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 not one of a thousand yeah. reps on a large platform like it's you and, and you run your RA. Or maybe you've got a a partner or a team of of just a few. So what's it like trying to do this in a large firm environment? From I don't know, like all the digital marketing the having a virtual team, charging alternative fee models in, you know, at the end of the day is one of the oldest standing traditional life insurance companies.
2: Right. It's been an educational process for them. A lot of, a lot of meetings to say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do and why I want to do it. Here's how it plugs into what we're already offering, you know, the field, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of education, which, you know, it slows things down because you've got, meetings about meetings about meetings with managers that manage managers that manage managers right you got
1: you got like you got to get a little ways up the line in a large firm just to get to a person who can actually look at what you're doing and say yes or exactly. no here's what you need to do to fix it
2: yeah and over time i've built those relationships so now i just go directly to the top and, okay. and have those conversations it didn't start that way but that's where that's where that's where i do now but I mean, long story short, I'm able to do pretty much whatever it is I want to do now. You know, I operate a couple of websites. I have my own brand, my own business. I'm able to charge the fees that I do, not really beholden to anything. So the infrastructure actually has worked really well. And then I'm able to, to punch in or tap into some of the stuff that they're doing that I am able to get at scale because they do have so many reps. So there right. some efficiencies that are passed through that way as well, which is kind of cool. But it has been a challenge. I will say it, it's a long journey. Uh, especially, I would say the biggest pain point has been the digital marketing side. There is this massive fear from compliance about doing anything digitally. So it's it's been a it's been a journey. <laughs> Interesting. So not
1: necessarily like the virtual team dynamics and being virtual yourself and working from the road or the other countries, the other continents like it's, it's the digital marketing side of things. That's been the biggest, biggest compliance challenge.
2: It really has. And in fact, when I was looking at hiring virtual staff, I talked to the compliance department. I'm like, what do you guys think of this? And they're like, we actually prefer it because if I've got a W two or a 1099 employee, I'm exposed to additional risks as an employer. When I hire a virtual assistant through a firm, I don't have to, they're not 1099. They're not W2. I'm literally paying their service off of my credit card every month.
1: Oh. So just all the like employment practices issue, you know, employees that complain about wrongful termination or or harassment or age discrimination or like, it's all that stuff.
2: it can happen when you hire
1: all a bunch of employees and have to deal with them. All that just vanishes.
2: It's vanishes. It's all gone. So that, which has been great. The digital marketing piece, like, because FINRA and the SEC have put out guidance on what they allow. There's something recently that looks like they're, they might start letting us actually have, like, testimonials. Yes, some
1: new new SEC guidance, at least as a proposed rule, that may actually open up the testimonials door and, and a little bit of third-party ratings and some other of the platforms out there. Like, Yelp already exists. Apparently, the SEC just figured it out. But hey, <laughs> welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> All right, Yeah. I I'm here. Can't complain too much. It's hard to turn a big regulatory <laughs> shit. So I'm, it is yeah. out there.
2: No. So they're, they're trying, but but they've already put out guidance and they have for a number of years now where we can, as advisors, we can market with websites. We can have social media. We can oh, do all of this. And the pain point is, is that a lot of the compliance departments will then overlay their own internal policy on it. And, right. you know, I have a love, hate relationship with, with attorneys. Cause they're really great when they're in your corner, but on the flip side, they always think the sky is falling and right. it's, it's the same thing with the digital marketing piece. Like, nope, you can't say that. Nope. You can't do that. So I've really had to educate our review unit on for content. Like, Hey, like this is what I'm trying to do. This is why I'm trying to do it. This is the message we're trying to get across. Let me show you. Right. And I've got the relationship built up now where I get pretty fast turnaround on almost everything and almost everything is approved because everything I have out there, everything you see is archived and pre-approved before it's published. Right.
1: So what surprised you the most about this journey of building
2: your own advisory business? That it works. that that it actually works and that clients embrace it. I was so deathly scared to make the transition that, you know, I've like, you were all taught like, Nope, clients will only meet with you in person. They're only going to hand over their life savings to you in person. And I have found that to be not the case at all. I have done business from all different parts of the world with people I've never met in person And they actually enjoy the whole, I have, I've had people I've never met tell me that they feel like they've known me forever, that they love working with me. Like I've got these great relationships yet. I've never met these Mm -hmm. people in person. So yeah, that, yeah, that it works. It's possible and people actually embrace it. But it strikes me, but part of what makes it work
1: for you, at least for getting new clients is you have built this focus around. CEOs, founders, and business owners. So you like, you're not just trying to thrive on people Googling virtual financial advisor, or I don't know, maybe you do get leads off of people Googling virtual financial advisor. You do, you do. So that's actually a niche unto itself is just not a big one, but a, I don't need a lot. I don't, I don't I need mean, deserves. <laughs> I don't have to meet in person. Thank goodness.
2: Well, that's it. Like, like they've in, in the one client I have, He's like, he searched it and then he researched it and he talked to some of them and they weren't really virtual. They just said they were virtual, but they still wanted to meet in person after they did like a phone consult. Mm
0: -hmm. And I'm
2: like, no, 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 no. Turnkey virtual structure. That's what we have. That's what you get when you work with us. But yes, I think you still need to identify an ideal client. I think that's terribly important for a lot of reasons. But if you are smart with SEO, if you are smart with the content you're putting out and you have a, a process there it's a lot easier to capture new clients online. You know, there's an old marketing trick out there. It's been there forever. This is something I learned as through my journey is that, you know, don't try to create your own following or community, just go where people already are and start talking to them. Hmm. And if people are online, they're already there. Like I'm not going to go try to like start like some new, like, Webs, you know not website but like new like coffee meetup once a month or you know whatever like i'm just gonna go where everyone already is and then i'll just be present
1: Hmm. which i guess is a version of what you were doing around marketing from day one of just just trying to find where people are and networking your way around them not not necessarily trying to you put on your own big show and make everybody show up for your thing
2: exactly yeah yep just just go where they are and Educate, and then people are buyers, and they'll they'll find you. Yeah. So, what was the
1: low point for you?
2: (laughs) There were a couple during the brick and mortar days. I remember one day, high overhead. I'm stressed. I'm like a shotgun approach. I don't know what I'm doing. Working a ton of hours. I literally had not had a paycheck for a while and went home and looked at my baseball card collection to see what I could sell just so we could eat. Oh, and
1: and that's a point where like you have clients, like you had clients and revenue. You just also have office and staff and all the rest. And so you're on the, on that treadmill of, you know, uh, I don't just have to get revenue so I can eat. I have to get revenue to pay my office and my rent and my team. And then if there's anything left, I get some.
2: Yeah. I mean, there was a period of months where I didn't take, I didn't pay myself anything. It all went to staff and all these other office related expenses. And boy, was it stressful. I I lost a lot of weight. I did not look healthy. Hmm. So that, that was, that was a low point for sure. And then the other one was, you know, coming to Wisconsin initially and having that whole thing blow up my face and like, what do I do? Do I do I stay? Do I not? Do I have to, you know, how do I do this? And there was no roadmap. There was no blueprint on how to do what I've done now. Right. Which, yeah, I mean, boy, that's stressful, right? Like it's like picking a destination, but not knowing the destination and then not knowing how to get there. Right.
1: So, so you've now kind of lived this journey or, or just kind of like blindly stumbled through it and found some things that worked. So now that you're a ways into it, like, what do, you, what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago?
2: Yeah, so don't build a brick-and-mortar office. <laughs> don't do it. Stay away from it. Like, I mean, let's, let's look at the consumer. Let's look at the, the general population. Where are we doing all of our business? We buy our groceries online. We date online. We do our banking online. We can talk to our doctors online. We're doing everything online. So it's only natural that people are going to want to meet with us, advisors, online. I don't think that robo-advisors are ever going to replace humans. Human beings are wired to connect. It's part of our DNA. So people still want, like, customized expert human advice. But the way they want it, the medium has shifted. It's not a kitchen table anymore. It's a computer. So yeah, coming into the business today, don't build a brick and mortar office. I would also say, identify your ideal client as fast as possible.
1: I think you make an interesting point that, that you really do have to split apart this distinction of, it's not as though that the question is, do we still meet with clients in person or there is no longer human advice? Right? Right. That That's not the right dichotomy. It's when you're gonna meet with people for human advice, do you meet them over their kitchen table over your conference table or through a computer those are just different mediums to have exactly human to human conversation
2: exactly and I'll, I'll sometimes joke that I'm not on their kitchen table anymore I'm sitting on their lap
1: <laughs> right <laughs>
2: you know they've got the laptop well, there that
1: doesn't that doesn't make you more tightly bonded to clients I don't know what does. <laughs> right <laughs> there' sort of a strange intimacy though of like yeah you know i'm 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 sitting in their lap and I'm literally talking in their ear because they've got earbuds in while we're having our meeting. Like I do think people just sometimes underestimate sort of the the odd level of intimacy that actually comes from like videos and, and and modern technology communication tools.
2: No question. Yeah, I think they underestimate, it. and I, that was one of the other things I've learned because I've I've mentored a number of advisors who are starting to transition to a, a virtual model the biggest roadblock or challenge all of them have faced is getting out of their own way. They all are so worried that the virtual thing doesn't work. Like, right? cause they, they they've got this, like I have to be across that kitchen table mentality and you don't, you don't you just get out of your own way.
1: So what comes next for you?
2: Yeah. So like, I'm going to continue to do this thing. I love what I do. I love working with people. I'm filling that, that private plane, if you will, I'm working on that over time. But what I've also done, is, which has been a, a passion project, a side hustle that's turned into something a bit more now, and because I've got all this extra time, because of a virtual business, I've allowed, it's allowed me to pursue other passions. And so I got bitten with the startup bug. So I created an education technology company earlier this year. And it's geared all around helping other advisors build or transition to an entirely virtual model. Now I realize it's not for everyone, but those that are looking, especially the younger generations, they're looking to do something differently and to ch- kind of challenge the status quo. Well, like it took me five years to figure out how to do it, but now I've I've put it together in a way where people can figure it out in 30 to 60 days.
1: Just the good thing of well, the good thing in air quotes, the good thing of having like lived the pain of the journey ever over the span of five years, like. I'll learn some things. I can tell someone else about them so they don't have to go through the pain that I went through.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, I, I'm a creature of learning and there's like, what is there? Essentially three ways to learn, doing, reading, and then learn from others. So, you know, this is a way that I can give back to an advisor community that I I, I think is, as you said, like it's stagnant, right? Like the the advisor population numbers really haven't changed and as a 25-year-old today, like if I were 25 coming in today and I came in and I was told, hey, you need to cold call as many people as you can. You have to drive all over the place. You're going to work nights and weekends. Oh, and and that thing, that digital media, social media that you love so much, you can't use it. I'd be like, "Uh, nope, I'm not working. Tonight. Oh, and by the way, you don't get a paycheck either. <laughs> you know, like – Right. <laughs> Why would a young, a young aspiring, you know, professional want to come into an industry that's doing things that were done a hundred years ago? Right. So I'm trying to change that. It's you're trying to dis- you know, I hate the word disrupt. It's so cliche. But at, at the end of the day, it's what, what I'm trying to do is change the industry and make it easier for advisors to live life on their terms, but still build an awesome advisory practice in the in the in the process.
1: And so for advisors who are curious and want to learn more about this, like where do they, where do they go to, to learn about it? Yeah.
2: So you can, I mean, check me out on LinkedIn. I'm happy to chat there. I'm just some links in my profile there. Also, you can just go to a website called virtualadvisorsystem.com and it tells you everything there. And actually what I would encourage people to do, and I don't know if you can do this, Michael, but I've got this really cool ebook I put together that tells more about my journey and where I see our industry headed, that kind of stuff. Sure. And, you know, if you want, we can put that in, in the, in this podcast notes or whatever, and people can download that. I, I would actually encourage people to start there because it's just, a it's like 20 pages and it's just a good bunch of information to give people some context and, and kind of open up their eyes as to where the industry has been and where I think it's going.
1: Okay. So we'll, we'll put links out to this for people who are interested. So again, this is episode 155 155. So if you want to check out Derek's further writing about his journey or the virtual advisor systems, go to kitsis.com slash 155. And we'll have live we'll have links out for all of this. So you can get a copy or take a look for yourself.
2: Brilliant. No, I I, I appreciate that. So so Derek, as we wrap
1: up, this is a, a podcast about success. and And one of the things I've always observed is the word success, just it means different things to different people, some of different things to us as we go through the journey. So, you know, you, you, you built this successful practice for yourself, freed up your time, got to a better place. But how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: That's a great question. It's a tough one. So thanks for throwing the hardest one at the end.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Success for me is waking up in the morning And loving what I do and loving that I don't have to put my life on hold to do it. Hmm. You know, I, I am just like my eight year old son's number one fan. And I I see how fast life changes. And like my father-in-law's had some serious health issues in the last year. And I've seen how, like, if you don't have your health, like life can change overnight for you. Right. So like, you know, I love building businesses and I love helping people, but there's got to be balance to it. And I, I think that the success I've finally realized at this point, and I hope there's a lot more, I hope it continues to grow is that I've kind of figured out where that balance is, where I can pursue my passions, but also like not always work. Right. Like, so I don't, I don't know if that really answers it. It's kind of a roundabout answer, but I guess that's how I feel about it. Oh,
1: I I love it. And I, I love that framing of just that you you don't have to put your life on hold. You don't have to make this a system of, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toil away for years and years with without doing other stuff in my life, trying to build the firm to a point, and then I'll get to do like the life stuff that I want to do. You, know, you, you do have a choice. You can build these more in parallel, but just you have to take control of those choices. So as you did, like who exactly am I going to work with? Who am I not going to work with? What staff am I going to hire? What staff am I not going to hire? What, what office? Am I going to have What office? Am I not going to have? What kind of freedoms do I get when I have to show up in a particular office space at a particular time to manage certain people? Like those are, those are choices we have that sometimes we don't allow ourselves because we put our own constraints on like, Oh, well, clients are never going to work with me virtually. So I have to stay here and do this thing. And And I think part of what's cool about your story is, is that you, you know, you rejected some of those assumptions and went and did anyways. And like, lo and behold, it works just fine. And those assumptions weren't right.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Like you, you have to be willing to question some things instead of having the blinders on. And it's tough. It really is tough, especially when you're dealing with a really old industry that's done it that way for so long.
1: Well, thank you so much, Derek, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: I really appreciate it, Michael. It's, it's been a blast. It's awesome. Love it. Great experience. And I uh, hope the listeners get some value out of it. Oh, I think they will. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Michael.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com